DiscerningHearts.com and the Seeking Truth Catholic Bible Study presents Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Sharon Doran, along with her husband Steve, are founders of the Seeking Truth Catholic Bible Study, whose mission is to actively seek truth and raise up disciples for our Lord Jesus Christ through an in-depth Catholic Bible study. Sharon, who holds two master's degrees in education and in pastoral theology with an emphasis in sacred scripture, is an experienced Bible study teacher for over a decade. She has a passion for scripture that motivates and challenges her students to immerse themselves in God's word and apply his message to their everyday lives. We now begin the Seeking Truth Catholic Bible Study with Sharon Doran. Today, we will be starting a two-part lecture series on the Beatitudes. And throughout these two lectures, I'd like to talk about the paradox of the kingdom of God. Now, God's kingdom is opposite the kingdom of this world. The Beatitudes are a set of teachings given by Jesus that begin with the words, blessed are. Now, in the Old Testament times, the people understood the difference between blessings and curses. We don't really think like that today. But in order to understand the Beatitudes, we need to understand the difference between blessings and curses in the Bible. We find the Beatitudes in both the Gospels of St. Luke and St. Matthew, although they're a bit different. In Luke's account, Jesus gave a sermon on the plain. In Matthew's account, Jesus gave a sermon on the mount. Jesus, the new Moses, would come down from the mount with a new law. The old Moses had delivered the law to the Israelites, the Ten Commandments. When he came down the mountain of God, Mount Horeb, also called Mount Sinai, Jesus, the new Moses, would deliver a new law of love to all people. Jesus had come not to abolish the old law, but to totally fulfill the law. It says in Matthew 5, starting at verse 17, take a listen to this. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now this must have been shocking for the listeners. Just hearing this is shocking. The scribes and the Pharisees were considered a very holy sect of Judaism. Jesus was saying that the righteousness of believers must exceed that of the Pharisees. Either the Pharisees of the time aren't too holy after all, or the common man had his spiritual perfection work cut out for him. Really, both are true. Like all people of all time, many Pharisees were living a life of duplicity, wearing that perfect Pharisee mask. But Jesus sees through the masks we wear to the public, and Jesus sees the heart of each man and each woman. Simeon had told Mary in Luke chapter 2 that Jesus had come to reveal 
hearts. Remember in John chapter 1, when Jesus chose Nathanael to be one of his own 12 apostles, and Jesus said to Nathanael, Here is truly an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. This is a man, Nathanael, with no duplicity, no guile, no mask. What you see is what you get. His heart was sincere and pure. That's what Jesus is calling for. Jesus sees hearts. And he had not come to abolish the old laws, but he was actually upping the ante. Those old laws don't go away, but they were fulfilled in and through Jesus Christ. The indwelling Holy Spirit of the living God would be poured out on Pentecost after Jesus had been resurrected from the dead, and the Holy Spirit would be the dynamite-like power force needed for sanctification and for living the moral life for each believer. St. Paul frequently talks about this, living by the Spirit, not by the flesh. The grace of the indwelling Holy Spirit had the potential to make each believer a personal temple of holiness, as well as the collective church, a true temple of on-fire believers. That temple was the holiest place on the face of the earth, yet it would be destroyed in only one biblical generation. In 40 years, in 70 AD, gone, Herod's temple would be destroyed by the Romans, never ever to be rebuilt again. The holy temple had once housed the true presence of the living God, but now each believer would be a temple, housing in themselves the true presence of God, and collectively they would be living stones that together made up a living temple called the church, the one flesh bride of Christ, the forever bride that Jesus had laid down his very life for, and he would make her blemish-free and a perfected holy offering to the Father through the sanctifying Holy Spirit alive in each of its members. The moral life of Jesus Christ was one of perfection. The term beatitude later came from that Latin adjective, which means happy, fortunate, blissful, or blessed. Matthew 5 gave eight blessings that corresponded with each beatitude. Luke gave four blessings, but also he wrote four woes, one that mirrored each blessing. So before we dive into the Beatitudes, we'll first examine some blessing history of Israel as a nation. It all started back in the Garden of Eden, where it always starts. And if we get the beginning wrong, we get the whole thing wrong. We always read scripture in a canonical approach, taking the unity of the entire two testaments together as one book. So in the Garden of Eden, man had every blessing imaginable. But the fall from grace lost the blessing. And that resulted by a free will choice of man and woman to disobey God's directive to not trust God's word. Each of the genders would then receive their own curses. One thing was for sure, the kingdom of the fallen world was completely different from the kingdom of God. And in Acts chapter 17, there was a major uproar in Thessalonica. Paul and Silas were being searched for by an angry mob, and when they couldn't find them, they attacked the house of another believer named Jason. Jason and the other believers were accused of turning the world upside down with their new kingdom talk. God's kingdom turns the world's kingdom upside down. God would establish a foretaste of his eternal heavenly kingdom in the form of his bride, his church on earth. Yes, this new kingdom was quite different, and many believers would lay down their lives for it, and they would never know greater beatitude, greater 
happiness. It's the same for us. When we lay our lives down in service of His church, it glorifies the Father. It brings us the greatest of joy, the greatest of beatitude, the greatest of blessing. Let's join our Seeking Truth lecture series of the Synoptic Gospels, Part 1 on the Beatitudes. Good evening. Welcome to Seeking Truth and our study of the Beatitudes tonight. Uh, Today is opposite day. Opposite day. This kingdom is opposite than any other kingdom the world has ever known. You want to be rich? Then you got to be poor. You want to be a leader? Then you got to be a follower. You want to be filled up? Then you got to be poured out. You want to be spiritually mature? Then you need to become like a little child. You want to live? Then you got to die. It's opposite day. (laughs) Get it? (laughs) It's an opposite kingdom than what the world knows. He came to turn the world upside down and inside out like nothing they'd ever seen or ever heard. He said, do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. I have come to bring fire on the earth. And oh, how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo. I have a death to undergo. And how distressed I am until it is completed. This is a paradox. A paradox, according to Webster, is a statement that is seemingly contradictory or opposed to common sense. And yet, it is perhaps true. Hmm. This kingdom is not a worldly kingdom. His kingdom seems to contradict the world, and yet perhaps, just perhaps, this kingdom is true. John's gospel, Jesus tells us, my kingdom is not of this world, but now my kingdom is from another place. It's opposite day. Saint Irenaeus of Leon knew opposite well. He was a church father, a bishop, a church doctor, a tireless defender of the faith. Student of Polycarp, Polycarp said under St. John. Irenaeus says, the business of the Christian is nothing else, nothing else than to be ever preparing for death. That's the gift of cancer. The business of the Christian is nothing else than to be ever preparing for death. We saw him call the apostles last week. At once and immediately, they got up and followed him not realizing initially that they too were preparing for death. Jesus went around all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogue, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, an opposite kind of kingdom. Here's a synagogue in Capernaum where Jesus taught near the Sea of Galilee. The limestone here is from about the fourth century, but the original material would have been basalt, the stone, and it's underneath, it's right there, and here's an original village at the time when Jesus would have walked the earth, and the bishop was just there. Jesus walked here. It really happened, like he said. And this church above is a church built over the original house of St. Peter, and the pilgrims can go in and look down onto St. Peter's house. And it's right on the Sea of Galilee. There's the church, the hexagon. It's right on the Sea of Galilee. The entomology behind the name of Capernaum, the town, is from the Hebrew, Kifar, village, Nahum, the village of Nahum. Who's Nahum? Nahum was a prophet who prophesied between 663 and 612 BC when Nineveh was at the height of its power, about 100 years after Jonah went there. 
Nineveh was the capital of Assyria, and it had control of the Fertile Crescent area. Assyria had recently conquered Israel, the northern kingdom, and was threatening to cause much suffering to the southern kingdom of Judah. Nineveh was eventually conquered by Babylon, as Nahum prophesied, and said, Nahum is not a prophet of unrestrained revenge. He asserts God's moral government on the world. God's moral government. Jesus will choose this place, village of Nahum, Capernaum, to give a new form of moral government about the kingdom of heaven that he's announcing on the Sermon of the Mount tonight. Josephus, a Jewish historian, talks about Capernaum like this. One may call this place the ambition of nature. He says there's always fruit in bloom. Ten months of the year, it's beautiful. Nothing, there's, always, there's always fruit and nuts. It, it's almost like a new creation, a new garden of Eden. And leaving Nazareth, Jesus came and dwelt in Capernaum, village Nahum, which is upon the seacoast in the borders of Zebulon and Naphtali. Isaiah 9 had told us that in the past, he humbled the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee. God will honor Galilee of all the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. How will he honor Galilee, the land of Zebulon and Naphtali, two tribes of Israel? Who's Israel? We always do the canonical approach like the Holy Father encourages us. So we look back. Who's Israel? Remember, Abraham was stopped from sacrificing Isaac. And then he had to question, like, I'm supposed to have all these descendants, as numerous as the stars and sands of the shore, so I better get going. So he sends Eleazar to find a wife at the well for Isaac. You remember? He meets Rebecca. And Rebecca, one problem is barren. She's not bearing, they, they marry and she's not having children. So they pray and she conceives. And remember she has twins jostling in her stomach. And the Lord says, two nations are at war within your womb. And the two nations were Esau and Jacob from last year, remember. Jacob holding the foot of Esau, wanting to get out first. Jacob selling the bowl of soup, uh, a lentil stew when his brother, the hunter, comes in famished. How about, how about uh, you give me the birthright for a bowl of soup? Sure. Ooh. And later, Jacob, remember, putting the fur on his arms and deceiving Isaac for the blessing. So Jacob means deceiver, he who grabs for something, he who supplants. So he grabs the birth order, he grabs the birthright, and he grabs a blessing. This is the father of our faith, Jacob. He's one of the patriarchs. And he runs away. Rebecca, Rebecca, his mother says, go, your brother's going to kill you. And he runs right into the arms of Rachel, who he meets again at the well, Jacob's well. And he weeps out loud. He's in love with her. Ask your father, ask your father. And his, her father happens to be his uncle, Laban, remember? And he's a polytheist. And Jacob says, I'll work seven years. Yes, I'll work seven years for Rachel. I love her so much. I'll work seven years of free labor. Rachel means you, a female sheep, prosperity. He works seven years, but there's an older sister, Leah, whose name in Hebrew means cow eyes. <laughs> she has weak eyes. Shouldn't the older sister marry first? But he works seven years for Rachel, and on the wedding day, there was much drinking and dancing. And that night, when it was time to consummate the marriage, Laban brings Leah to Jacob's tent. Cow eyes, remember. Jacob gets Jacobed. He gets Jacobed. He gets deceived himself. What comes around goes around. You reap what you sow. And so another seven years of work, another seven years of more labor, another seven years of atonement, another seven years of going closer to his God, the God of Israel. And he worked another seven years. Rachel, Leah was unloved. 
and she knew it. But God blessed her with her first son, Reuben, the first tribe, Reuben, because my Lord has seen my misery. Then she had another son, Simeon, because the Lord heard that I'm not loved. And then she had another son, Levi. And she said, now, now, now surely he'll be attached to me. I've borne him three sons. This son will go on to be the Levitical tribe of Israel, the priestly tribe, the Levites. Then she had a fourth son. And she said, this time I will praise the Lord. I will thank the Lord. And she named him Judah. Judah, I will praise the Lord. I will thank the Lord in Hebrew. Yada, she gave thanks. Judah, Todah will become the Thanksgiving sacrifice. Judah is named Thanksgiving. Judah, 794 times referenced in the Bible. Judah, the lion of Judah is Jesus Christ. Like Melchizedek offers Todah, Thanksgiving sacrifice, David will offer Todah, and Jesus will be Todah. He is the Thanksgiving sacrifice. He's the high priest and the victim, both. And that will be our Eucharist, the Todah offering of Thanksgiving for his sacrifice. The lion of Judah is also the lamb of God, the lion's lamb. This is opposite day. Jacob blesses his sons before he dies, and he says, Judah, the scepter will not part from you. Judah gets the blessing. He's the fourthborn. How's that happen? This is like no other kingdom. This is a kingdom. He says, you're going to have the blessing. You're going to have the scepter. You're going to rule all the nations in obedience. Baby wars continue. They have two maidservants. Leah has Zilpah. Rachel has Bilhah. Bilhah, Rachel's servant, has Dan and Naphtali, two more tribes. Well, Zilpah, Leah's maidservant, conceives Gad and Asher, tribe seven and eight. And then Leah is, says, God has blessed me so much for sharing my maidservant with my husband that he's given me another son. I'll name him Issachar. And then she has another son, son number six. And Leah says, God has presented me with a precious gift. This time my husband will treat me with honor. I will name him Zebulon. And Zebulon means honor. The father will honor me, my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons and he's named Zebulon. He will honor Galilee. God of the universe will appear here at this time in history. Zebulon's tribal territory is on the seashore of Galilee where Capernaum is. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. He will honor Galilee. And here's the tribe of Zebulon's territory and Naphtali. Leaving Nazareth, Jesus went there and does the majority of his ministry there. Baby wars continue. Now, Rachel, who he loves, conceives a baby. God has taken away my disgrace, and she has Joseph. And then she has Benjamin, and she dies in labor on the road right outside of Bethlehem, where Jacob marks her grave with stones, and it's still there today. It's the third holiest site for the Jews to visit in Bethlehem, right outside of Bethlehem. This is Rachel's grave. This is where Rachel is lamenting she is there when Herod slaughters the holy innocents. She is in her grave right outside the same vicinity in Bethlehem. Rachel weeping for her children, she would not be consoled since they were no more. The holy innocents, the first martyrs. And it fulfills the prophecy to Jeremiah that Rachel's voice would be heard lamenting, crying for her children, which she still does today, the innocent children who are still slaughtered today for no reason. Rachel's hope. Rachel's project, Rachel's rosary. We see she's an intercessory saint for the unborn, the innocent. 
These 12 sons then are the 12 tribes of Israel. They're a family, a family that will grow into a nation, a great nation. The Lord says, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the people on the face of the earth to be his treasured possession. They are the firstborn. They go around the tabernacle in the desert exodus. They line up in a certain order, the tribes. They each have a stone on the breastplate of the high priest. And they each have land, a parcel of the promised land. Jacob has 12 sons by four women. Each son will have a place in the promised land, a territory. And when Jacob blesses his sons, Reuben, Simeon, and Levi had indiscretions, and we won't get into that, but Judah gets the birthright, and Joseph gets the blessing. Joseph gets a huge blessing. Remember, he was the favored one, the love of Rachel, the colored coat, all that. But Joseph will be in Egypt. So Jacob says, I will take your two sons as my own, Manasseh and Ephraim. And when he goes to bless them, remember what he does? Here's Manasseh. He's the oldest one, Dad. And here's Ephraim. Boop. He crosses his hands, and he gives the, first, he gives the secondborn the blessing. Ephraim gets the blessing of the firstborn. So the sons Ephraim and Manasseh are also given territories of the tribes of Israel. Levi doesn't have one because the priestly tribe didn't have land, didn't own land, and Joseph doesn't have one. So those two go to the two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. So it's a united kingdom of the 12 tribes of Israel. And their first king we've talked about was King Saul, then King David, then King Solomon. But after Solomon, they become a divided kingdom. And it's sad, it's so sad for the nation, the great nation of Israel, once united, is now divided. 10 tribes, um, after the death of Solomon, 10 tribes go to the house of David, appointing Jeroboam their king. And the other southern tribes, just two, Judah and half of Benjamin, go to the south, to the kingdom of Judah. And they will eventually be exiled to Babylon. And it was the policy of the Babylonians, like the Assyrians, to disperse a conquered nation throughout their entire empire to reduce rebellion. So all the people were transported from Jerusalem, the city on the hill, Mount Zion. They're transported all the way from Jerusalem to Babylon. They leave their land. They leave everything. Everything is taken from them. Everything. They come and they burn the temple. Solomon's temple. They can't do sacrifices anymore. They, are, they have lost everything. They are banished from the promised land like their original parents were banished from the Garden of Eden. They've been banished from the eternal city, Jerusalem. Banished from their promised land that they worked so hard to achieve. Jeremiah tells them, and this was in our reading, first reading this Sunday, Behold, I will bring them from the north country. I will gather them from the farthest parts of the earth, among the blind and lame. He says, For I am father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn son. And a lot of people at Mass don't know what that means. Ephraim's my firstborn son. That's because Joseph got the blessing, and Ephraim is the son of the right hand. He's this one, the blessing hand. So we don't understand blessings and curses in our culture, but the Jews at this time did. They understood quite well. Blessings and curses, blessings and woes. Remember last year, blessing, blessing, who has the blessing? We followed that blessing all the way through the book of Genesis. The firstborn was supposed to have the blessing. But as we saw it time and time again, Abel didn't get, Abel was favored over Cain. Isaac was favored over Ishmael. Jacob was favored over Esau, on and on and on. The Jewish people are the firstborn son. The Gentile people are the secondborns. 
but we all get the blessing. We all have the blessing, the worldwide blessing promised to Abraham extended to us. In the Catechism, it says, by deeds and words which are intrinsically bound up with each other, they shed light on one another. This is how God teaches his people. This is God's pedagogy. He communicates himself gradually to man in real ways. He really walked the earth. There are blessings and curses. I'm not going to read all this, but it's an important chapter to know. Deuteronomy 28 is the chapter of blessings and curses. First are all the blessings. Then the second half of the chapter are all the curses. And I'll just sum it up to say this. If you fully obey the Lord your God carefully and follow his commands, I give you today, the Lord God will set you high above all the nations on the earth and all these blessings will accompany you. But if you do not obey the Lord, your God, and do not follow his commands and decrees I'm giving you today, then curses will come upon you. You will be cursed in the city and cursed in the country. So obedience to God the Father always brings blessing. Disobedience brings curse. From our first parents onward, God teaches. God shows us because he loves us and he wants us unto himself. The worst curse went to the serpent in the garden, to Satan. Cursed are you above all the livestock, and an offspring of woman is going to crush your head. He got the worst. Woman gets pain in childbirth. Not so bad with epidurals, right, ladies? <laughs> Desire for your husband, and he will rule over you. And the man, Adam, God says to him, cursed is the ground because of you, Adam. Cursed is the ground. You will have thorns and thistles, sweat of your brow. You'll return to the ground unto dust you shall return. So Adam is trapped in the ground. Eve is trapped in the ground. All the patriarchs are trapped in the ground until Jesus can come, harrow the gates of hell, free the imprisoned spirits, and make a way back to the Father. He was busy on Holy Saturday. Ephesians, we had this in daily mass last week. Paul says, what does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower, earthly regions? The footnote of my Bible said, or the depths of the earth. He descended to the depths of the earth. He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. Jesus breaks the curse of the ground. He breaks the curse of sin. He breaks the curse of death. He makes a way back to the Father. Adam and Eve were exiled banished from the Garden of Eden, banished, banished from the Father, separated from him, just as the Jews of Judah were banished from the Promised Land, banished from the Holy City, banished from the Temple, banished when they were exiled by the Babylonians. We too have been banished. We are banished. We too are in exile. We were created for this perfect union with the Father, made in his image and likeness. After the fall, we lost the likeness. We don't look like him much anymore. We don't act like him much anymore. Our intellect is darkened. Our will is weakened. Just like they were created for divine sonship with the Father, we too were created for divine sonship, divine daughtership, to be in union with the Father. Perfect union. We were supposed to be in perfect union with him. That's what our heart wants. That's what we desire in the deepest part of our being, to be united with the Father. Sometimes we don't know that. We fill it up with all other things that the world has to offer. We don't know that the ache is for the Father to be back in union, perfect union with him. The fall of mankind radically changed things. 
But God has a plan. He had a plan before the foundation of the world. He's always had a plan. The plan's name is Jesus Christ. Now, after the fall, Adam names his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. All the living. Is Eve the mother of all the living? Of all the living in this world? Of all the living who haven't been baptized? It's opposite day, remember? It's a paradox. She's the mother of the banished children of Eve. No child of Eve's is fully alive until it's baptized. And then it's born, reborn, to be a child of the new Eve, Mary. In the Marian church, that's the bride of Christ. The child's baptized into Christ. It's a paradox because it's one of the happiest days for the parents. They're bringing their baby to die. Baptism's a death. It's going to go under the water. It's going to die to the old man and put on Jesus Christ, the little white gown of salvation. That plan has a name. His name is Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And if you seek him, you will find him. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Friends, until next time, please keep seeking truth. You've been listening to Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. To hear and or to download this episode, along with many others, go to discerninghearts.com. To learn how you can become a participant, either online or in a classroom setting of the Seeking Truth Catholic Bible Study, go to seekingtruth.net. This has been a production of discerninghearts.com and the Seeking Truth Catholic Bible Study. Join us next time for Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran.